0: Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about performance in a supporting role. mentioned in the last inappropriate conversations that I'm a little bit off the schedule that I might otherwise maintain for myself. I really wanted to speak about the best supporting acting Oscars prior to the Academy Awards, which were just about a week ago. But that didn't happen, so I'm still going to cover it after the fact, which means that I'm going to get to talk about the fact that the one Oscar I was the most interested in came out exactly the way I'd want. But first, March the 7th, Coming up here is going to be an interesting day for me. It's the fifth anniversary of posting the first Inappropriate Conversations podcast. So to me, that's a bit of a landmark. And all of the Inappropriate Conversations shows are still out there and available at uh, www.inappropriateconversations.org. March 7th was the first. Like Clockwork, one week later on March 14th was the second. Uh, The first one just introduced the show. The second one introduced the author. And different drummer as a concept, and it was pretty much a weekly show from that point forward. I got four in in that first month of March in the year two thousand, meaning that I'm a little bit surprised to say that you know almost without a hitch with very few interruptions of any length, even though I've gone to an regular schedule and more of a twice a month approach than a once than a once a week approach, that inappropriate conversations has lasted this long. You can also find inappropriate conversations, in addition to being able to play the shows from the website, including all of them. uh, The show's on iTunes, the last 20 or so are available, and the last 20 or so are also available on Stitcher. For uh, oldest shows, I've gone to SoundCloud and pulled out just clips. If there's a situation where I've shared a a piece of my own prose or poetry, or a, a topic where maybe an essay is at the centerpiece of it, or just the way I addressed a particular piece of the topic is a good teaser... I've gone to those earliest episodes, starting with number one, pulled a clip, and posted it on SoundCloud. On SoundCloud, I'm IC underscore Greg. You can find me on Twitter, at IC underscore Greg. And from a social media perspective, just to round it all out, uh, Facebook has a page for inappropriate conversations. It's the one listed as a cause. And the other podcast on this feed, Walk the Earth, also has a page uh, giving people the ability not only to see that I've posted a podcast and maybe a link to that podcast, but also some of the things that I'm reading or thinking about or just taking in along the way. It's not unusual for the things that I post on those Facebook pages or via Twitter to connect directly to either the upcoming podcast or one of the upcoming podcasts. So I'm very pleased that Inappropriate Conversation has gotten to this point. And now to veer into the topic, I want to talk about acting in a supporting role, both Best Supporting Actor and Best Supporting Actress and I want to do so, as somebody who hasn't really done, I'm not an actor, so this isn't me speaking in terms of my personal opinion about my craft. I've done some public speaking before, but uh, more in more of a nonfiction sort of way, I guess is how I would word that. So I want to introduce the topic from a couple of different perspectives. First, since this is kind of Lent, I want to go back to some writing that I've done in the past around Lent and kind of introduce this, this notion of the cameo role I'll speak a little bit about character actors and past nominees for Best Supporting Actor, Best Supporting Actress, but I think I want to start this show with a little bit of poetry. Poetry is a part of what Inappropriate Conversations is about. I have, of course, shared my own poetry in the past on certain shows, but I've also shared the poetry of others. And if I ever do get back to the point of that sort of full circle meta moment of going into the journal that I called Different Drummer many years ago while I was still in college, and pulled any topic from that particular set of journaling to share on the show. So a different drummer episode where there's also going to be a different drummer. Again, I mentioned it would sort of be a little meta to do that. But if I would do it, I'd probably share this particular piece of poetry again. So it applies to uh, some of the... It's a really important piece of poetry to me, based on some journaling I've done in my past that I'm not going to talk about today. But it's also what I think about when I think of this concept of being a supporting actor. It comes near the end of the famous T.S. Eliot poem, The Love Song of J. Alfred, Prufrock. And I'm just going to dive right in. And would it have been worth it, after all? Would it have been worthwhile? After the sunsets and the dooryards and the sprinkled streets, after the novels, after the teacups, after the skirts that trail along the floor, and this and so much more, it is impossible to say just what I mean. But as if a magic lantern threw the nerves and patterns on a screen... Would it have been worthwhile if one, settling a pillow or throwing off a shawl, and turning toward the window, should say, That is not it at all. That is not what I meant at all. No, I am not Prince Hamlet, nor was meant to be. Am an attendant lord, one that will do to swell a progress, start a scene or two. Advise the prince, no doubt an easy tool. Deferential, glad to be of use.' politic, cautious, and meticulous, full of high sentence, but a bit obtuse, at times indeed almost ridiculous, almost, at times, the fool. T.S. Eliot from The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock and that list he offers there of things that a supporting character does, in this case in a play, Uh, starts a scene swells a progress he doesn't mention it explicitly here but perhaps one of the things that qualify in this context is that notion of being exposition from time to time i'll watch a movie or a play and point to a character and just call that character mr exposition or mrs exposition or captain exposition at its worst supporting characters are simply that transparent that utilitarian but at their best They're the glue that can hold an entire play together, or in the case of the show I'd like to talk about first, an entire movie together. You see, the the Oscar that I was looking forward to, having only seen two movies this year, from the the slate of films being considered for the Oscar ceremony that just happened, I'd seen Guardians of the Galaxy, still a little bit annoyed that it didn't get more credit for its special effects, as as a matter of fact, and Boyhood, and I enjoyed both films, would recommend both of them, probably with some caveat. I think you almost have to recommend Guardians of the Galaxy and make sure that the person who knows what you're recommending knows it's, it's a superhero movie. It's a Marvel Disney superhero movie. And in that context, it's wonderful. And in the case of Boyhood, it's a filmed experiment. It's almost a uh, improvisational script writing and acting experiment. And if you're expecting something more profound than that, uh, you're going to miss out. It's almost a fictional version of Michael Apted's Seven Up series, where Apted, as a documentarian, would follow the same group of schoolchildren uh, in in England from age seven to fourteen to twenty-one to twenty-eight. I think he's up to forty-nine up, or maybe even fifty-six up by now. Every seven years, visiting the same characters, and in this case, Richard Linklater, a former different drummer, was following the characters that he had created using actors and a fictional script on an annual basis, and sort of watching this progression where the principal character was the boy. But frankly, I was a little bit surprised when I saw the nominations and saw that Patricia Arquette was not nominated as a Best Actress nominee, but rather as Best Supporting Actress. I suppose it could go either way. It reminds me in some cases of the nineteen eighty eighty one period, I think it was 81, where Susan Sarandon was nominated as Best Actress for her role in the movie Atlantic City. But she nominated herself, or that's as the story goes, for Best Supporting Actress. And again, you could see it either way. Was Atlantic City a star vehicle for Burt Lancaster near the end of his career, where Susan Sarandon was providing a very, very good support? Or was she, in every part, the, a co-lead from the perspective of the way the film was presented? And Patricia Arquette had that same quality this year. She probably has as many screen minutes as the lead actor. I find the Arquette family as a group of actors to be a bit of a mixed bag. And it's hard to say how much is because of their personal life versus their performance, or how much is the quirkiness of the roles that they've taken in the past. But I quickly became a fan of Patricia Arquette and and her work in the film, and frankly take offense to those who tried to suggest that she was probably going to win an Oscar not for her acting or for her role in the film per se, but because she allowed herself to age naturally and didn't get plastic surgery because no one was making the same claims about Ethan Hawke, who did the exact same thing and took the exact same course as an actor throwing his lot behind a 12 plus year kind of experiment with Richard Linklater at the time, I think probably established as a talent, but not necessarily established as somebody who you could guarantee would have the clout to see this thing through. I would have given Richard Linklater the Best Director Oscar as well, but I say that having seen none of the other films nominated for Best Director and Best Picture, any opinion I have about that will have to wait, and of course any opinion I have about that will have to suffer through the bias of the fact that unlike all the other nominees, Richard Linklater is already a different drummer, so I already have a point of view about his work. Let me talk about the acting in this supporting role from three different perspectives, one of them, the cameo. I'll get to that one in a minute. One of them, character actor. And, and, and that's, to me, slightly different concept from supporting actor. And then the last one would be the rest, or what we might just generically call supporting actor. When I think of character actor, I think of someone who you don't expect to ever see in a leading role. You tend to see a, a person with a lot of personality in that respect, maybe sometimes even a little bit quirky. Uh, we're going to find when we take a look at the history of the Best Supporting Actor Award that, yeah, there's some folks there who have won a lot of supporting actors, and I think truly character actors as far as it goes, just because of the number of times that they've won. But then when I think about supporting actor instead and sort of the difference there, I, I think that isn't necessarily just somebody who's always going to be that, uh, that face you recognize, but not a leading man or leading lady kind of a face you recognize. In some cases, supporting acting performances have been turned in by people who are unmistakably stars or even superstars. I think about the role that George C. Scott played as a lawyer opposite Jimmy Stewart in Anatomy of a Murder. Based on the screen time that the two men had, there's no doubt that Jimmy Stewart was the name above the title. And George C. Scott, uh, not quite as far along in his career at that stage, would have been a supporting actor. But the support came from the way their scenes worked together. uh, As a prosecuting attorney and a defense attorney the film really needed to have the right chemistry between those two. And, of course, I don't mean that in a romantic sense. In many ways, it was an adversarial type of chemistry. But uh, supporting doesn't necessarily mean out in the shadows or set aside or or not a bright, shining star in the film, because the aggressiveness of George C. Scott's performance in the Otto Primminger film was crucial. So you can be a supporting actor by being more than just... an attendant lord, or somebody whose job is to swell a scene or two to, to stretch the minutes or to, to buy time, or to share information uh, with the audience, to give the audience the backstory. There's more to it than that. So the character actor, I think, in some ways almost can be used negatively to describe people who've sort of been consigned to that role. And these are the sort of people where you see them often, you recognize them when you see them. Heck, I even recognize them when I watch films from the 70s. You can pick out the character actors from that era if you saw the movies when they originally aired. But supporting actor is more crucial than that. I appeared on a panel discussion for Movies You Should See a couple of years ago on the film Network. And I believe, and I'm just shooting from the hip here, it's been a while, but I think that for a two-plus-hour movie, Beatrice Strait might have appeared in seven minutes total. You could probably add her collective screen time into two or three scenes at the most, and yet for that limited impact uh, in terms of the amount of time she was given as a performer, she was hugely impactful to the storyline and won a deserving Best Supporting Actress Oscar that year. The thing with films that are uh, based on the screenplays of Patty Chayefsky is the wild card there really is the quality of the acting. The screenplay tends to be a given. Uh, Chayefsky was that good. But it's a question of whether you get consistent performance throughout the script to really bring that screenplay to life. I recommend Network. It's a great film. And all the leading actors in the film were nominated. Uh, The movie got nominations for Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor, Best Supporting Actress, Best Actress across the board, I believe. So I could recommend Network as a good example of Best Supporting Actress not needing a lot of screen time to make it happen. Before I jump into nominees and begin looking at the history of the award, because I am thinking about it this time of year based on the Academy Awards and the Academy Awards broadcast, which, as I mentioned at the top, just happened. Before I do that, though, let me take a quick step over to what the cameo is, because the cameo is very different. I tend to think of the cameo role as being every bit as small, in some cases even smaller than what Beatrice Strait did in the movie Network. But often, or just as often, uncredited. So even when there's a bigger performance with more appearances or even a more crucial plot driving element to it, it often tends to be uncredited and it tends to be a moment for an established actor to give back. When I was thinking about this a few years ago, and again it was this time of year, it was during the period of Lent, the first thing that came to my mind, maybe it strangely came to my mind, were the lyrics of Joni Mitchell and her song A Case of You.
1: Is touching souls surely party you, touch my you out of me in these lines from time to time
0: i remember the time that you told me you said love is touching souls well surely you touched mine because part of you pours out of me in these lines from time to time I've shared these words from Joni Mitchell before, and what they mean to me. It's one of my favorite lyrical moments in the history of rock and folk rock music. I used it kind of as a way of kickstarting this talk about the cameo. Here's what I wrote back then. Perhaps the greatest gift a famous actor can give is the cameo. Like the friend in Joni Mitchell's song, A Case of You, these roles touch in subtle ways. When Burt Lancaster appeared at the end of Field of Dreams... He rounded out a fine set of performances. Bill Murray didn't steal the show in Tootsie, but he was the comic accomplice who made that show worth stealing. For all the risks Robert De Niro has taken, he showed great gusto with his supporting role in Brazil. Most of these performances are unbilled at the actor's request. The cameo is a way of giving, not taking prestige. It's important to ask ourselves, who has played a cameo role in our lives? Or a better question... Do we know someone who needs us to make an impromptu, uncredited appearance?
1: Peoples of the universe, please attend carefully. The message that follows is vital to the future of you all. Greetings, follow wanderers in the fourth dimension. I'm Emma Foster. And I'm Michael Mould. And we're the hosts of the greatest show in the galaxy, Simpsons Indicators 4A into all things Doctor Who. From the old... Hey, hey. Doctor Who... What are you talking about? To the new. I'm the doctor, I'm worse than everybody's aunt. From the good. We all make no one, we are the superior beings. To the bad. bad. No, not the mind's broke. From the sublime. Don't blink, don't even blink, blink and you're dead. To the ridiculous. My dreams are conquest. We'll be sharing our thoughts and feelings across the broad spectrum of the Hooniverse. You're serious, aren't you? About what I do, yes. Yes. Not necessarily the way I do it. That's the greatest show in the galaxy. Part of the simply syndicated 21st century media network. Splendid fellows. All of you, all of you.
0: So I guess I'd say I'm a sucker for the supporting acting performance. To use some shorthand, some cultural shorthand, it may be enough to say that in the uh, television show Gilligan's Island, I was always a big fan of The Professor and Marianne, even back when they were just known as And The Rest, in the TV show's opening theme song. And for that reason, I guess I appreciate seeing how things are put together. Maybe my favorite American film is Reds. And Reds is a movie where once you get past those two principal leads, uh, played by Warren Beatty and Diane Keaton, the movie is just an entire series of supporting roles and cameo performances. And the fact that Beatty gets such good performances from the rest of the actors in his cast is the reason that movie works. It's three hours and 20 minutes of quality time to spend. That time is only going to be good if the performances are good. But to go back to the Oscar side of things, for example, and just to look at it from that perspective, I'd like to take a look at the Best Supporting Actress Award first. Uh, Just talk about Hattie McDaniel, 1939, Gone with the Wind. This might have been the first time, where if you look at the history... I begin to take the Best Supporting Actress role seriously. In fact, all the acting roles. I think it's, it's this particular award. One of the first, if not the first, Academy Award going to an African-American, it's certainly an African-American actress, in 1939. And part of that is getting swept up in the success of Gone with the Wind. So, yeah, no question about that. But for that era, for this 1939 period, fairly, a fairly surprising and, I would say, well-deserved honor. Uh, when you look forward, you see, again, actresses that I don't think probably would have been as credible for a Best Actress nomination. Gloria Graham had you know important roles to play in movies like It's a Wonderful Life and Crossfire. She won a 1952 for The Bad and The Beautiful. There are some where there's some crossover. Uh, Shelley Winters, I think, interestingly, has been nominated more than one time in the Supporting Actress role. She won a 1959 for Diary of Anne Frank and she would win again later for a patch of blue. And if I'm remembering right, probably be a nominee for the Poseidon adventure. If she wasn't, that would have been a kind of a surprise. You see actresses who were at interesting points in their career, maybe older or even much younger, Ruth Gordon, Goldie Hawn, and Helen Hayes, winning in successive years, the award going to people at the beginning of their career, but in the case of Ruth Gordon and Helen Hayes, at the end of their career. And when you think about... What did Helen Hayes bring to the movie Airport? That that movie was greatly aided by her presence. Some of that is the writing, but I would suggest that probably most of it is the acting. Uh, going back to that beginning of Career Person, Tatum O'Neill, 1973, a winner for Paper Moon. Same year that the supporting actress nominations included Linda Blair for The Exorcist. So, if I was going to try to name my favorite from this list, well, I think one of my favorites is Patricia Arquette, This Year, uh, and... Most of us, the first time we saw Meryl Streep was probably Kramer versus Kramer, 1979, winning Best Supporting Actress that year, uh, the first of obviously many. I'm going to say my favorite Supporting Actress performance of all time is probably Jessica Lange in Tootsie. So in that short article, I mentioned Bill Murray's role and how important he was in bringing the comedy to the film, almost being the voice of the audience as the, as the movie is progressing, calling out some of the absurdities so that we don't have to do it for the film. But Jessica Lane, very much the heart and soul of that film, and I mentioned when I was calling Terry Garr out as a different drummer, that in 1982, both Lane and Terry Garr were nominated for Tootsie. And typically, when you see two performers nominated for the same film, especially if it's not one of the major acting awards, it wouldn't be at all surprising to see them cancel each other out and for the award to go somewhere else. But in this case, Jessica Lange winning for Tootsie, I was, I was on board with that completely. The scene where she, near the end of the movie, Tootsie tells the Dorothy Michaels character, Dustin Hoffman and drag, that she loves her, but that she can't love her, and shuts the door in her face, is among the best acting performances I've ever seen. If you want to take just a 25-second clip, uh, that scene with, with Jessica Lange and Dustin Hoffman is as good as it gets. If I jump over to the actor side of it, I mentioned that I would call out a couple of names where we think of these, you think of that character actor, kind of that quirkiness, right? Walter Brennan. By the time uh, Heidi McDaniel had won her Oscar, he'd already won two. fact, he would win, the very next year, his third Best Supporting Actor. So... One of those sort of, uh, again, faces that you would think of as being a character actor, kind of a role. Walter Houston for uh, The Treasure of Sierra Madre is one of my favorite supporting roles. And at the time I saw Streetcar Named Desire, it had been late enough. I was in college by the time I finally saw any parts of that film. And I would have known Carl Malden as being the uh, detective from the streets of San Francisco. It's always interesting to catch an old film especially with an actor near the beginning of their career playing in a relatively small role. But Carl Malden put in impressive supporting actor performances for both A Streetcar Named Desire and On the Waterfront. The acting nominees lately have gone to some bigger-than-life characters. Characters where their screen time may indicate that they wouldn't necessarily be a a lead actor nominee, but their their characters certainly are larger-than-life. J.K. Simmons winning this year for Whiplash... Jared Lanto last year uh, for Dallas Buyers Club. uh, Very good examples. Christoph Waltz has a couple of Best Supporting Actor wins. And uh, in in this case, both those wins kind of coming in some larger-than-life roles. Probably the best examples would be the back-to-back years of Alan Arkin winning for Little Miss Sunshine, Javier Bardem winning for No Country for Old Men, and Heath Ledger winning posthumously for The Dark Knight. Those are some larger-than-life type roles in movies where... Even the smaller of those films, the actor sort of dominates. So, again, supporting actor doesn't have to disappear. A supporting actor can actually be fairly central to the plot. Uh, uh, Bardem in No Country for Old Men is an excellent example of that. Chris Cooper, a few years earlier for an adaptation, is another one. If I were to try to name a favorite Best Supporting Actor nomination, at least favorite from the period of time that, that I've been watching movies intensely, it might actually be, and I feel like I'm cheating a little bit, I'm sure that there's better examples than this, but it might actually be either Robert De Niro for The Godfather Part II, or maybe more likely the Jack Nicholson nomination for Reds. Uh, Jack Nicholson didn't win that year. John Gielgud won for Arthur. But his performance of Eugene O'Neill, again, uh, you could probably write that entire set of scenes right out of the plot. Save, save the movie half an hour, but the film would be much less... As a result of it, and he provided a, a strong counterpoint to the romance plot line that uh, could have easily overwhelmed the movie Reds. When I'm watching a film, I'm not watching a film from the perspective of star power. Usually, when I'm watching a film and I'm watching it seriously as a critic, the place I'm tending to focus is, is on the film editing. To me, The editor, and I called this out in the very first year of Inappropriate Conversations, uh, mourning the death of D.D. Allen, who is still my favorite film editor of all time. But that's where the craft of filmmaking is different from everything else. Uh, Photography is great, but there are other disciplines of photography. When you're talking about moving pictures, you're really talking about putting that photography together in a sequential way. But the other thing that I'm looking for when I watch a movie isn't necessarily stupendous star power from the leads. Certainly I'm not a leading man, leading woman kind of guy. No matter what my words about Anita Ekberg a week ago might have suggested, no, instead, I'm looking for that attendant lord, that person who's holding the scenes together. Of course, I'm cheating myself just a little bit by only looking at this from the perspective of the Oscars, by looking at a list, one of Best Supporting Actor and Best Supporting Actress you know nominees and winners. What about all the great performances and supporting roles that weren't nominated, and weren't nominated in part because those roles tend to go to English language, in fact they tend to go to Hollywood films, the Academy Awards essentially being a Hollywood exercise. But to me, when you expand to look at it from an international perspective, then things get kind of interesting. A few years ago, online, on the forums at simplysyndicated.com, back when they were alive and kicking, I remember putting a post up, kind of talking about, it might have been a make your own box set thread of some sort, trying to remember the context into which I interjected the idea of it. The idea really was, what if you could put five or six movies together and sort of make your own DVD or Blu-ray box set, uh, where the link wasn't necessarily something as obvious as uh, the movies of Steven Spielberg or something like that. And, And my take was, I'd like to put together a box set, call it Best Supporting Actor, and the link would not be... Uh, these movies that I've just mentioned, these great moments in history, that, that is more of an interesting documentary idea. No, to me, I was going to name Best Supporting Actor a series of movies around one individual performer, and that performer is our different drummer, Michel Piccoli. of being a bit of a list, but I think it's going to be helpful to talk about it from that perspective. Because in some ways, one of the qualities of these uh, supporting actors, even if they veer a little bit toward the character actor side of the spectrum, is that they can often disappear into the film. And that's not a negative thing. In this case, that's an extremely good thing. And when I, I do want to wander through some of the key performances in Peakley's history, just to talk about the achievement of being so central to so many critical films during this crucial period in international cinema history. And again, because his bread and butter was international cinema, you don't see his name appear that often in either the BAFTA Awards or the Oscars for these Best Supporting Actor, Best Supporting, or Best Lead Actor kind of roles. You'll see it more often perhaps in the film festival side of things, but we'll get to that here in just a moment. From a biographical perspective, let me begin with the IMDb, page. It's not like me to start an IMDb, but I think this one's really succinct, and it's going to get me in the direction I want to go. Born in a musician's family, Piccoli spent the first 15 years of his career appearing both on stage and on screen, mostly in supporting roles. His breakthrough came after Jean-Luc Godard's Contempt in 1963, and about 100 films, ranging from arthouse movies to commercial mainstream, followed. He won the Best Actor Award at the Cannes Film Festival for A Leap in the Dark in 1980, and the Silver Bear in Berlin for Strange Affair in 1981. Actually, winning that award in 82 for the film Made in 81. Not surprisingly, he was chosen to impersonate Mr. Cinema in Agnes Varda's 101 Nights in 1995. The focus I want to make here, though, is back to this concept of being the Best Supporting Actor, and Contempt by Godard, is one of those key films. We'll catch up to that in the timeline here in just a moment. From Wikipedia, just to confirm a little bit, he P- 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 born into Paris in a musical family. His mother was a pianist. His father was a violinist. He's appeared in many different roles, from seducer to cop to gangster to pope, in more than 170 movies. He's worked with Jean Renoir, Jean-Luc Godard, Claude Laloche, Jacques Demi, Louis Mel, Agnes Varda, Louis Manuel, Costa Gavras, Alfred Hitchcock, Marco Ferriere, and more. So really, a broad range of directors that he's worked with. And the way I want to handle his selected filmography, which takes up way more than a couple scroll-downs on the screen if you were looking at his page on Wikipedia, the way I want to handle it is to talk about the role of supporting actor in the context of who is that actor supporting. Now, for some of these movies that I'm going to cite, I haven't seen them. So I can only go by what the cast list tells me. But where I have seen them, I might give it a little bit more color. I might speak to it. And as I cruise through the list and we start mentioning uh, director names, we're going to find a fair number of different drummers among the names of the directors. He has worked with Bunuel, Rene, Hitchcock. So he's got quite the pedigree in terms of having worked with the kind of directors that I enjoy the most. In 1954, not the first film he appeared in, but on the earlier side of his career, he appeared in French Can-Can, directed by Jean Renoir, uh, playing Le Capitaine, supporting Jean Gabin. In 1956, for Luis Manuel, in the film Death in the Garden, he was Father Lazardi, supporting Simone Signoret and Charles Vanel. Those are familiar names from the movie Diabolique, made in the same era, so it kind of gives you a sense of the camaraderie among the French actors, and sort of the cadre, the ensemble within which he was working. The very next year, 1957, he appeared in the Raymond Rouleau film, The Crucible, so French version of that particular film. He was James Putnam, starring opposite, again, Simone Seigneuré, and this time Yves Montand in the leading role. Contempt. Part of his IMDV page, and really, I think, by all accounts, a crucial supporting role to be playing, that's the Godard film. He played Paul Gival, supporting Brigitte Bardot, Fritz Lang, and Jack Palance. He returned to working with Bunuel again in the next year, 1964, for Diary of a Chambermaid. He was Montiel, supporting Jean Moreau, with a significant supporting presence, if I'm recalling right. In 1966, he appeared in The War is Over, la Guerre est finie, uh, directed by different drummer, Alain René. He was a small role in this one, a customs inspector, Uh, supporting Yves Montand, again, also Ingrid Thulin and Genevieve Bujold. I haven't seen the 1966 film Is Paris Burning? And I'm not sure whether he's good support for this one or not. His role of Edgard Bizani is small, in a sprawling three-hour movie about the end of World War II, uh, otherwise starring Jean-Paul Belmondo from Breathless, Charles Boyer, and Leslie Caron, and many, many more. The Young Girls of Rochefort, 1967, Jacques Demy's the director. He was Simon, supporting Catherine Deneuve. It was the second of three films he would be in over about a 20-month span, working with directors like Varda and Bunuel and supporting Catherine Deneuve. The very uh, same year, in fact, 1967, my absolute favorite supporting role performance by Piccoli, who is my favorite best supporting actor. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that this is the greatest supporting performance of all time. But it's my favorite actor to see in a in a supporting role, in my favorite of all of his performances in a supporting role. For Belle de Jour, he was Henri Huzon, supporting Catherine Deneuve and Jean Sorel in that film. I won't go into the details of the show itself. If you get a chance to see Belle de Jour, by all means do. And when you're doing, look for this sophisticated friend of the doctor, husband of Catherine Deneuve's character, who doesn't really do much in the plot except offer sardonic criticism and plant ideas which turn into the seeds of the actual Mijon Sen itself. So, uh, Belle de Jour, great Boonwell film, and Piccoli's role in there cannot be, uh, cannot be overestimated. He would appear again with Boonwell. so fair to say I could probably put together a box set of just his supporting performances for my favorite director. Cod red-handed there, I suppose. But in 1969, in the Milky Way, he played none other than the Marquis de Sade. It was a small role, in the, a large cast, in a movie that was designed to depict as many religious heresies as possible, he contributed <laughs> in that regard. In the same year, 1969, he appeared in Topaz, which I think most people would consider to be lesser Alfred Hitchcock. He was Jacques Granville in that, a uh, supporting cast filled with relatively little star power by Hitchcock's standards. So this is not one of those Hitchcock movies that would have featured Cary Grant or Jimmy Stewart in leading roles. In 1972, Luis Manuel, the film that won him the Best Foreign Film Oscar, The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, Piccoli was the minister supporting Fernando Rey and Delphine Seyrig in that role. And the minister, anybody who's seen The Discreet Charm, will remember the role the minister plays right in the center part of that film. Part of the reason that I wanted to mention uh, Piccoli is that sometimes when you're dealing with a supporting acting performance in what is otherwise a true ensemble... It becomes very difficult to say, well, where is the starring role and where are the rest of the roles? Because in Le Grand *The Grand Buffet by Marco Ferrieri, he was Michel, and appearing in an ensemble with Marcello Mastroianni, Philip Noriette, and others, they were either all, the names above the title, the star of the film, or they were in some ways all support. And it's a little bit odd to try to get your head around where the starts and stops are on all that. But of all the films that I've seen here that would not be either big name and well-known because of the quality of the director, like uh, Bunuel, for example, but also not the kind of movies that you're going to catch on cable, the one I would recommend people seeking out is this one, The Grand Buffet. I can't say I'm picking the movie because it's that good. In many ways, I'm picking the movie because it's just strange. Here's the storyline. Four middle-aged, successful men. Marcello, a pilot. Michelle the Piccoli character, a television executive, Ugo, a chef, and Felipe, a judge, go to Felipe's villa to eat themselves to death. After the first night, Marcelo insists that women should join them. Three prostitutes make it through a day or two. Andrea, a local schoolteacher, stays to the end. The villa, the food, and a roadster are essential plots. It was rated uh, X or NC-17 for some explicit uh, sexuality, but perhaps it would have been rated fairly harshly, at least a hard R, just for the strangeness of the idea of a suicide attempt or a grouped packed suicide being centered around this notion of excess. Literally, eating, drinking, and engaging in sexual behavior uh, until that level of excess uh, originally, just, initially just leads to death itself. These are the kind of experimental films coming out of Italy in the early 1970s. And despite being a French actor, uh, Piccioli was a part of a number of those experiments. Back to my list, as I get near the end of the list. The Phantom of Liberty, 1974, one of my favorite Luis Bunuel films. A very small role here. He's listed as second prefect. But that's okay. It's an anthology-style film that also put acting talent and famous actresses like Monica Vitti in relatively small supporting roles. Toto Modo, Ilya Petri's 1976 film, is high on my list of movies that I want to see that I haven't seen yet. Uh, so far, I've found it impossible to get a film, a copy of this film that's subtitled in English. I have gone online and found one that I can watch if I'm willing to watch it in Italian, but I've got a feeling that even an excellent English subtitled translation might be a little bit hard to follow. The central figures... The plotline itself requires a little bit more of detailed knowledge of, of Italian politics and society than I've got. But the look of the film is so unusual. And the star power, not just Piccoli, who plays Louis, an also-starring kind of role in the credits, but it also has uh, Marcello Mastriani. I would refer to this as an obscure and controversial Italian political film. 1976. So with the exception of the Alfred Hitchcock film, I'm not sure I've listed very many here that would have been readily available as English-language films, the kind of movies that would get you nominated for Academy Awards or Oscars. Atlantic City is one, though. Early on in the topic, I mentioned Susan Sarandon, and her struggle to figure out whether she should be considered, after the 1980 Louis Malle film, a Best Actress or a Best Supporting Actress. Uh, and if you've seen the film, you'll kind of know that Sarandon's role kind of does kind of cross that line. To the degree that this is 100% a character study of Burt Lancaster's role, then she's definitely a supporting actress. But compared to her, uh, the role played by, um, the Joseph role played by Piccoli, is even more of a supporting role. And that's a uh, 1980s Atlantic City. The last one I'll mention as a specific film is a 1997 film by Lavinia Curie called Passion in the Desert. And this one did get some uh, Oscar nominations. I remember it being viewed as a, as a critical, kind of a dark horse nominee. He plays Jean-Michel Venture de Paradis, a starring role, arguably, in what is probably his most recent English-language film, alongside Ben Daniels. He wasn't the character that ended up with, in the bizarre, symbiotic relationship with a tiger. He was the other character. Piccoli is still alive. Uh, having been born in Paris in the late, in, late in 1925, he is near the end of his career, but his most recent film critics include multiple projects from the year 2011 to the present. Perhaps there's something about the longevity that a supporting actor by nature can bring that maybe a lead actor, and especially a lead actress, would struggle to bring. In an industry where looks are paramount, especially for those leading-type roles, and where an actress like Patricia Arquette is viewed as being unbelievably courageous for being willing to be filmed, As she naturally ages, in a movie that was shot over multiple years, over the course of a decade or more, it's a little bit easier, maybe, for somebody who's a known supporting actor to continue to play roles as their appearance changes with age. At least, that's one possible explanation for Piccoli continuing to be active in the profession. The other is that maybe I'm right, and that of all the actors who've ever performed on films in any country across all those decades... Michelle Piccoli might actually be the best supporting actor of all time.
1: On Starbase 66. So, Kasey McFadden is on Twitter. <laughs> oh, and I can't, I haven't followed her yet. What the frack is wrong? Oh my God! It was like the first thing I did. I was like, oh, must follow, must follow. Have, have you seen her Tumblr? I have. <laughs> it's because she she had originally started just posting those photos through her Twitter feed, and I was like, oh my God, she's got the same action figures I have, and she's <laughs> playing with them. It's like I should play along. And then I was like, okay, now I'm now I'm getting a little manic and crazy. Listen to Star Wars 66, the international Star Trek and Genre Fiction Podcast on Simplysyndicated.com, SoundCloud, and iTunes.
0: Inappropriate conversations has always really been about promos. I've used promotional clips from the very first show on, and will continue to do so for as long as I possibly can. Because in an audio blog format, it's helpful to have just another voice or some sort of interlude to break and divide topics as I go through and discuss them. In today's show, and there's no accident in how they're picked. They're picked strategically, I suppose. In today's show, I've gone with promotions for uh, two Simply Syndicated programs. One is the Greatest Show in the Galaxy podcast, the Doctor Who podcast, and the other is Starbase 66. In the case of Starbase 66, it appears that that podcast is nearing the end of its run. It started a little bit before I did, maybe even six months or so before I did. We've been following a parallel path. I've met every single one of the podcasters who started that show in person. As Starbase 66 nears its end, one of the more recent shows, perhaps not yet released but imminently to be released, is a tribute to Leonard Nimoy. Uh, Nimoy died just this past week, in fact, just before the weekend, And thoughts of Nimoy have really dominated my consideration as I get close to doing this topic. Sometimes I think when I want to record and I I get a little bit of anxious, kind of feeling that I'm letting myself down by not hitting the record button on the day I want to and not putting something out there into the stream as soon as I want to, I just sort of have to relax and say maybe things happen for a reason. When you think about it, uh, Doctor Who as a series, especially the, the newer seasons that they've had since the show came back, have a lot to do with supporting performances and, frankly, even cameos. One of the things I like about The Greatest Show in the Galaxy as a podcast is hearing how even cameos from actors I don't recognize are recognized by the English audience either because of uh, references within Doctor Who or simply there's a lot of English character actors that I wouldn't recognize the same way I'd recognize an American character actor, especially an American TV character actor, in the same way. But perhaps one of the best... You know, co lead actors or supporting actors in television history is Leonard Nimoy. His Mr. Spock is frankly the reason I ever watched Star Trek. I don't know if I would have stuck with it through, uh, let's say, season three of the original series if I wasn't there to watch Spock, even when Spock was being put through some pretty incredible nonsense, like the Spock's Brain episode, as an example. So, uh, Leonard Nimoy, I guess the thing I would say is, is farewell. His tagline was Live Long and Prosper. He certainly did that, and he did it on the on the small screen as well as the big screen. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at ic underscore greg at hotmail.com. Show notes are also enabled with comments at www.inappropriateconversations.org. And as I mentioned earlier, you can also find and interact with Inappropriate Conversations on Facebook, Twitter. SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Thanks for listening.
1: Stories. What Some Would Call Lies is a weekly storytelling podcast where each week I tell a story from my life as accurately as I see fit. I've always had trouble distinguishing between what happened and what merely might have happened, but I remain unconvinced that this distinction, for my purposes, matters. Go to WhatSomeWouldCallLies.com or you can subscribe in iTunes or with Stitcher Smart Radio. I like to eat pizza.